I'm James Dart, co-founder of Inspiring You and Yes, I Will Vote, and welcome to the 10th episode of Ramona Telling Our Story series podcast. On this week's episode, we have Seb Dance, the former Labour MEP. Seb and I discuss the Labour Party, what went wrong during the People's Vote days, how things might have panned out differently, and where Labour goes next. We also discuss the solidarity and the sadness that was felt in the European Parliament at the time of our Brexiting. And we discuss the future, where our community goes next. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Seb. Hi, James. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you so much for coming on the, uh, on the podcast. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Um, most people will know who you are, I think, in our community. But for those that perhaps don't know who Seb Dance is, could you just tell us a bit about yourself, your background? Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously you became a, me- a member of the European Parliament, how that happened and what your job was there, just very briefly. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a, I'm, who am I? I'm a political obsessive who, who has the misfortune to be obsessed with, with politics. Uh, and that's uh, not necessarily a good thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I was a former uh, member of the European Parliament for London, uh, represented London for just over uh, five and a half years uh, in the European Parliament. I was the deputy leader of Labour's MEPs in the European Parliament for quite a lot of that time. And uh, right towards the end, I was the vice chair of the uh, Environment Committee in the European Parliament, which is the biggest uh, committee uh, in the Parliament in terms of legislation that it does. Um, I mean, you know, very briefly, I, I uh, was obsessed with politics since as long, far back as I can remember. My first political memory is Thatcher resigning, shows how old I am. Um, and, um, you know, just from there, I was obsessed with, with politics and the power of politics and, and you know, its ability to transform the world around us, uh, uh, but also, you know, to do immeasurable harm as well and, and, and fighting against that. And I'm an internationalist by nature. It's it's partly kind of, you know, obviously what I believe, but it's also informed by my family background, which, you know, is is, is varied and, and the pe- people have come from different parts of Europe and, you know, uh, basically were shooting at each other until not, not so long ago. Really? Okay. Um, yeah. And, and the, the, the joy of... of something else a different vision of, of how europe can can work towards its you know towards solving its common problems means that i've always been a europhile mm. um so yeah I, I just became politically active volunteered for things got selected and then by some fluke of electoral magic um in 2014 i got elected i doubt it was a fluke Seb. let's be fair i think um <laughs> i think you're very popular um so I want to take you back to the day of the referendum. This is where I've kind mm. of tried to start all of these episodes. Yeah. What were you doing on the day? <clears throat> oh, right. Yeah. Well, I remember it really well. It was sort of almost biblical weather. I mean, we had these <laughs> kind of really hot sun, you know, bursts followed by these torrential downpours. And, and then at times the sun would shine through the storm clouds and it would all just feel so dramatic. But um, I was in a battle bus um, a, a, a Labour battle bus that was kind of touring bits of London, um, obviously my constituency at the time. And uh, yeah, we were just going everywhere and anywhere, really. Um, I mean, well, I mean, we had a list, obviously, of places that we were supposed to go to. And yeah, yeah knocking on doors and getting people out. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a, a really odd campaign because obviously this is this is a tactic that we do all the time. We have data on people that we gather over the years and then we go out on election day and knock them out so that, so that we know that we get our supporters to the ballot box. 
And with this, obviously, we were working with data that we'd only really been collecting for you know the best part of half a year. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm pleased to say in London it was fairly accurate. You know, most most people that we spoke to were were, were going out to vote Remain, and we were just you know encouraging them to do so. And yeah, I, I, it was it was an odd day. Obviously, I was feeling extremely nervous. Um, the, I was feeling kind of really kind of reassured by the previous night, actually, the, the, the eve of the referendum where I had been leafleting in Soho. <laughs> and of course, yeah, you know, get quite a, a skewed picture because, I mean, honestly, it was it was actually ridiculous. I was going up to restaurants. We were leafleting. Um, and I would hold a leaflet up, you know, a, a stay in um, stronger in leaflet, and the whole restaurant would would you know would would applaud and they'd be cheering. This, I mean, I'm not making this up. You know, it was yeah, yeah. it was it was kind of scale of support that you just you just sort of was was just overwhelmed by. And I would, mm. just was going out into Soho Square and talking to the people. They were cheering and saying, "Yeah, yeah, don't worry. You know, we're going to be voting tomorrow. We're voting in." You know, and Obviously, I was talking to my colleagues in the rest of the country who were giving a very different picture. Mm. But I just felt, oh my God, the scale of, of, of feeling about this was just so strong, um, really strong. Um, and you know, the day itself, I remember the reports, which we now know were, were all tactics um, and very successful ones coming from Vote Leave, saying that you know, turnout was up in cities, therefore everyone needs to get out. Very effective, but you know, we, we sort of believed it as we were traveling around thinking, you know, this is gonna, this is gonna go our way. Yeah. Um, and then of course, um, just before 10 o'clock, I remember I spoke to, to someone at a polling station. He wouldn't tell me how he was gonna vote. And he went in and I knew instantly he was voting leave, but I thought, well, you know, I've had a good day. So it's a one-off, you know, whatever. Um, and then on the way home, we heard Farage's concession, uh, basically, which again, we now know was a tactic to drive the pound down. Um, and yeah, it all, it all, it all went well until Newcastle. Um, and that's immediately when Newcastle came, I can't remember what it was. It was 50 point something remain. Yeah. And I knew then it was over. Uh, and the rest of that evening was appalling. I mean, it was one of the worst evenings of my, my life and, uh, I was crushed, utterly crushed by it. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, for me, it was a little bit different. I, I hadn't quite got to the stage where I was, you know, passionate about politics. Um, but actually that evening, I think, or the day after my response to something that I didn't really know I was passionate about, um, mm. something I thought I was fairly apathetic about, which is the European Union, my, my response in the morning told me that um, something wasn't right. And I needed to, and I, I wanted to lend my voice to to um to this discussion even after the fact so i mean it was a bit late mm. in the day for me but um and there were so many people like me as well i think that saw that and that was a catalyst for them getting into politics because they were like oh actually mm. that's that seems that seems totally nuts what's just happened there um yeah. but some of the people i've, I've interviewed um on this podcast have, have had the same th um feeling of, of just doom um worst day of their life sort of thing some people were crying um so mm. it's, it's a strange one because before the um, before David Cameron started talking about the referendum, um, the, the EU was was never really in the news. It was if you look at the the polling to show what we cared about in the social attitude survey and stuff, the EU was 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 nowhere near. But it and yet so many people were so affected by the result. It was it was kind of bizarre. Maybe something that 
you know, something we had and, and we only realized it, how good it was until perhaps it, it looked like it was going to go away. Maybe, I don't know, but, um, yeah. so. Yeah, I mean, that's the genius of Farage and the Leave campaign is that they chose an issue that was so far down <clears> on <throat> people's list of priorities. I think it was something like 16th or something on, on a survey that was done ahead of the 2015 general election. Um, you know, it was an obsession that they'd had and that Bill Cash and, you know, and others in the right of the Tory party had had for years, yeah. but most yeah. people didn't, you know, give a toss. No, of course not. No. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it rises and rises and rises until they make it a binary issue. Are you mm. in or are you out? And of course, that's what the referendum did. It was why the referendum was a monumentally um, foolish decision. Because you know you reduce something complex into a yes or no question, and then everybody chooses their camp, and then they that, that's it. You know, you, you've you've created this division out of an issue, which so few people, so few people, you know, rated as an issue beforehand. I mean, it's mm. it's, it's you know, it, it, it's genius, I suppose, in a horrible way, because um, it worked obviously. But it, yeah, it was it, this was not you know the idea that people were chomping at the bit to leave the EU for for forty years is of course complete nonsense. Yeah, quite, quite, quite right. And I remember talking to my mum and dad who voted to leave after the vote. They were very passionately defensive about their vote. Mm -hmm. And it took, mm -hmm. it, took, it took me and my brother, both of us who, who started Inspire You Up, it took us well, well over sort of 18 months really to make any kind of headway with them in terms of, and mm -hmm. I, I don't say that in a kind of arrogant way, like, oh, we were right and they were wrong and they just needed to sort of understand that. But they said, they came to us eventually and was like, do you know what? We've just not been listening and there's mm. nothing all the reasons we voted for leave um now that we can now that we think about it and reflect on it because you've spoken to us so much about it mm. we un sort of understand now that we were just it was based on nothing it was just based on feeling it wasn't based on any mm. kind of rational um decision making um but i think and this is kind of why jack and i said inspire you was the hope that young people might be able to have those conversations with their parents um and then get some movement because it just felt like there was so little movement but anyway we'll, we'll, we'll come to that i think in, in a minute but i wanted to talk to you next about the labor party obviously you remember the labor party mm. do, you, do you remember what, what age you joined the labor party have you i was, I was 16 or 17 something. okay okay yeah yeah and what year it was <laughs> that's the only party you belonged to that was the first party you joined. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. i've yeah. always voted labor i voted labor in my, in my mock um school election back oh. in 97 that's you know that yeah. was that was uh you know I've, I've always voted labor so you that's that's hardcore um <laughs> to go, <laughs> hardcore, even at school yeah. you were you were labor yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah but 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 i mean labor's role in this period i think has been really interesting because you had a party that was in terms of membership very pro you mm. um but a lead a leadership that that almost was the opposite and i don't want to draw you too much on on the past and get into all of the Corbyn stuff too much. Mm. But I just wanted to, I wanted to ask you about the, the triggering of Article 50, because I remember at the time, obviously it wasn't Labour who were in power, so it wasn't them who had the decision, but they voted for it, didn't they? Um, and I remember speaking to a professor at the university where I was studying at the time in Exeter. He wrote an article or an essay about how we should have, before we decided to trigger Article 50, we should have had a, a sort of a grace period, a kind of cooling off period where mm. we reflected on it and had a had a kind of national conversation at that stage before triggering article 50 mm -hmm. as to what the destination was because we decided in the referendum on the kind of direction which was maybe to leave mm -hmm. certainly we wanted change and very mm -hmm. for very for very understandable reasons but 
we didn't have a, a roadmap. There was no talk of a destination. There was no, you know, we, we didn't know if we were going to be leaving the single market or the customers union or, or, or any, we just didn't know at that stage. Do you, do you think, mm. do you think Labour's decision to, to vote with the Tories to trigger Article 50 was a mistake? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I agree with you. I mean, I, the, the narrowness of the vote, but also the, the profound nature of the, of the change and, and, and what it would mean for, um, you know, our place in the world and, and our economy and, and our society, but also its impact on the union. I mean, it, it, the fact that Scotland voted to remain, the fact that Northern Ireland voted to remain, the fact that big cities voted to remain, mm-hmm. I mean, should have triggered some kind of, you know, red flag, you know, in, in the sense that, well, okay, you can't dispute the referendum. So I, I think, you know, some people suggested that, you know, it wasn't valid because, I don't know, um, you know, whatever, the whole ton of reasons why people say it's not valid. The result was valid. Absolutely it was. There was a, a, a clear, if very, very slim majority to leave the European Union. The question is, what does that mean and what does that look like? Because it was never explained or, or in fact, there were very many contradictory visions that were given. You mentioned the That's single right, market. Yeah. Yeah. There, was, there were uh, leavers who said that we wouldn't leave the single market, like um, uh, Dan Hannan. Uh, Dan yeah. Hannan, exactly. Yeah. Um, and others who explicitly said we would. So, I mean, you, you know, they could always pull on a quote to prove one thing or the other. That's right, yeah. Um, so I absolutely completely agree. There should have been a, a full com- you know, national conversation about what this means. Um, we should have gone through a period of, of basically outlining the objectives uh, and then determining whether or not it was possible. Now, of course, it would always have been my view that it's impossible to meet the objectives of vote leave by leaving the European Union. Absolutely impossible. You can't you know, increase investment. You can't increase opportunities for young people and so on and so forth. I don't want to re, re- go over all the arguments. Yeah. But the point was, you know, you needed a process of, of demonstrating that the direction that we want to go in isn't possible by by leaving the EU or if it is sorry if, if if we insist on leaving the European Union that you do so in a way that protects um you know certain aspects like membership of the single market customs union whatever yeah um and so I was yeah I was always of the view that you know losing the referendum was a huge setback and a, and a massive tragedy but but ultimately um you know it didn't mean abandoning the idea of of promoting being in the EU like why why would you abandon the idea of the EU as a, as a force for good on the basis of, of people voting narrowly to say we want to leave it. It's like, okay, take note of that and, and let's see how and whether it's possible and continue to argue that it's not, from my point of view, whilst others, of course, would have argued the opposite and that's yeah. fine. But I was very surprised by the reaction, I think, um, that sort of just, yeah, you know, immediately called for, for uh, you know, the immediate... Um, granting of article 50 and, and and that's it off we go and i just thought that was extraordinary did you did, do you think that corbyn did it because he was concerned about losing the red wall which obviously he did end up losing mm. yeah it didn't do any good did it um yeah no i don't think he had any electoral um, consideration at that point whatsoever okay. i mean the the, the the problem is we labor party is a remain party full of remain members and remain members of parliament but with a vocal but significant minority of leavers and that vocal and significant minority happened to be leading it um at the time um and that's you know that that was a, a disaster waiting to happen and was one of the reasons why i pleaded with many of my colleagues in brussels not to vote for corbyn 
in the leadership election as far back as 2015 because you know it was quite obvious to me where this was going to end up if he became leader but you know that that happened and we tried to you know we tried to steer him in a different direction mixed success but yeah that's fundamentally the, the reason we had a, a leave leadership yeah. leading a remain party i mean just touching on, on what you said about um where the, the reason we, did, we didn't have a conversation even though we, we could have had to, to what extent is Theresa may an issue here because i remember thinking mm. at the time she could have chosen to reach out across the aisle and mm. come up with a kind of cross-party consensus on what brexit ought to be but i always mm. got the impression that her view was that she had to pander to the hard right to the erg basically and mm. ended up just just being bullied by them mm. um yeah so none of these decisions that anybody took uh, including as you say to pursue the hardest of brexits without any kind of consideration of what it meant for our politics our union or indeed you know the kind of cohesiveness of our society let's face it um they only make sense when you consider that this whole thing is because of the rift in the tory party yeah so this this, this is a civil war in the conservative party that's been going on since 1992 it's over now that the civil war is over yeah. the leavers won the leavers won um, yeah. and you know that but, but but that that war has been going on for, for years and years and years and and may decided um that she would put the interests of her party above the interests of the country and that, and, and everything else stems from that yeah uh, and, and and basically that's the heart of the, the issue throughout is that this has all been done in the name of the conservative party and in uniting the conservative party and on that front it's a huge success i mean the conservative party is is 100 now united um behind a nativist uh, policy uh, and and that's you know the, the the moderates have been either expelled Urged. or been subsumed by it. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Um, and and with, with that in mind, then I want to move on to the next question I have, which was why did it take so long? If I remember Caroline Lucas in one of the online in one of the debates that she said, and she was pleading with um, Barry Gardner, I think it was, and she was saying, "Come on, Barry, Brexit <laughs> is you know it's it's of the right, for the right, by the right. You know this. Come on, come on." Um, Give us a ratification vote. So, uh, with that in mind, I mean, considering you know Corbyn's leadership was very left wing, far more left wing than than, than previous um, Labour leaderships. Considering mm. most of the country understood that Brexit was was for the right, why did it take so long for Corbyn? I mean, I, I kind of know the, the the obvious kind of answers about not not wanting to lose the red wall and blah blah. But mm -hmm. why did it take so long for Corbyn to for Labour to end up with? offering us a ratification of it because they did by the end of by 2019 they were one yeah. of the parties offering us basically a second vote or a ratifying yes. vote why did it take yes. so long our position in 2019 was actually really good um but you're absolutely right it was, it was too little too late and and by the point that we arrived at that um decision uh the damage had basically already been done i mean the popular narrative in some quarters now is that you know it was a mistake to offer people's the vote and that we should have you know just accepted the referendum i mean ex forgetting the fact that of course we would have lost a huge swathe of the support from the cities and elsewhere where, yeah, where course, our position yeah. actually was, was essential in shoring yeah. up our vote um but you know we came within nine parliamentary votes of securing a people's vote that's what people forget and had yeah. that people's vote amendment gone through and had we secured a people's vote 
it would be the Tory party now that would be lying in ruins. It would mm -hmm. be the Tory party that have been would be riven aside. So politics really can turn on a dime. It yeah. really can. Yeah. And yeah. events completely unexpected. I mean, look at COVID, for example. I mean, they come out of the blue and they they completely change our politics um, in ways that we can't even imagine. So, um, so it's very kind of fashionable to look back and say that, you know, people like me got it wrong. I don't think we did at all. Yeah. Um, but yes, it did take, it did take a ridiculously long time. And I think that, you know, you've touched on one issue. The red wall is a, is a problem because, you know, lots of Labour MPs represented leave seats. So for them, it was a huge issue. And, you know, those of us who were pleading with them, uh, you know, people like Anna, um, Turley, for example, in, in Redcliffe, we, we were citing her as an example to follow because she represented a leave seat, but she was adamant that Brexit would do it, you know, untold damage to her constituency. She wasn't holding back. She wasn't pretending. She wasn't, she was basically saying to people, it's not that I'm not listening. Of course I'm listening. I completely understand what you're telling me. But you, can you please also listen to me when I say this is not the answer? Mm. You know, that the worldview of build cash is not going to improve the people's lives in Redka. Mm. Um, unfortunately, she was, you know, a minority compared to other MPs representing leave seats like Caroline Flint, for example, who said that, you know, the only way to, to, to save these seats for Labour is to go full on support for Brexit and, and, you know, not to challenge anything that the government's doing on it. Of course, in the end, they both lost their seats. You know, but I, I, I'd rather be the person who did it with a bit of integrity, quite frankly, mm. and, and mm. you know, but stuck to their beliefs uh, in terms of what is what is right and what is wrong for their communities. Yeah. But um, you know, <laughs> that that was a huge challenge at the time, trying to trying to win over very skeptical colleagues who who thought that we had to back leave in order to to stop a, a complete um, hemorrhage. And, and I mean, I, I have some sympathy, obviously, with with certain um, Labour MPs, like like you say, who were in leave seats um, and you know have their careers to think about as well and I, I have some level of sympathy and I remember I put a lot of pressure on um uh what's Plymouth's Labour MP called I've forgotten him Luke Pollard, Luke Pollard. Yeah. yeah I remember sort of like putting some pressure on him on 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 social media um a bit because he was in my neck of the woods uh and I knew him to be a Remain advocate privately mm. but he just wasn't doing it publicly and I remember thinking I'm not I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna go you know too hard on him but I just know that he probably just needs a bit of a bit of a push um, <laughs> um and he did get there in the end um yeah. but I understood the reason why he was hesitant um because you know he's or well, he's now you know he's now in the shadow, 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 shadow cabinet had he had he gone too hard too fast maybe he would have lost his seat and now he you know blah blah, blah. but so I, I sort of understand it to an extent but ultimately like you said both of those people that you said um lost their seats so it was a, hot, yeah. a rock and a hard place for a lot of MPs. But I want to just quickly ask you, was it possible to avoid a general election, hold mm -hmm. hold our nerves in that period? Because I felt like we were so close to a people's vote. It was so close. And I asked yeah. AC Grayling this question, and he basically said um, it wasn't campaigners, it wasn't the public that that, that failed us, really. It was, it was losing our nerve at, at the wrong moment because Johnson didn't have the arithmetic in Parliament to, to do what he wanted yeah. to do. And like you said, it was we were nine votes away from getting from getting this vote or whatever it was. So, could we have avoided a general election? Yes. Could we have got there? Yes, yes, we could have. Absolutely, we could have. Um, here's one of the tragedies of history. I mean, yeah, history is written by the the, the victors, not yeah, the losers. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, the, the narrative is that um, 
uh, Brexit is overwhelmingly popular in the country, and that's been proven by you know the, the general election result and, and, and every vote that we've had. You know, um, of course, the alternative, uh, which as as we we know, we came nine votes of, of coming within, was was a was a, a an alternative timeline where both the Liberal Democrat leadership didn't believe the hubris of their own very flawed internal polling, which showed them winning, you know, seat after seat and taking them off the Tories in the South. Um, and, and, and Labour's quite frankly useless then leadership, um, who, who basically thought that it was just going to be a repeat of 2017, forgetting, of course, that they were up against a very different uh, personality in Johnson, yeah. Yeah. someone who can, quite frankly, reach out and connect to people that, that may couldn't. Yeah. Um, you know, a general election was always going to be a catastrophe with a Labour leader like that uh, facing a, a Tory leader like like Johnson. Um, whereas the People's Vote was a very different proposition, as of course we indeed saw in the general election result itself, which had a, a clear majority for yeah. parties in numerical terms, uh, not in, in seat terms, a clear majority for parties backing another referendum. Yeah, yeah. And it is absolutely my conviction that that referendum would have completely destroyed the Conservative Party once and for all, because there was no way they could have come back um, from re-exposing the divisions that, that, uh, that, 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 you know, the original referendum had sought to bury. Mm. Um, so it was a catastrophically stupid decision by the Liberal Democrats and by the then Labour leadership. Mm. I have to throw in, can I throw in the SNP here, who basically would, would, were acting out of self-interest um, yeah. in saying, you know, basically, um, you know, they knew they were going to win big in terms of Westminster seats, so it didn't really affect them from that perspective. But actually, uh, having another Tory government and losing the opportunity of the people's vote, that would be a surefire way to have another independence referendum. So here we are. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never, yeah, to be honest, I mean, I've never trusted the SNP on um, on any of the Brexit stuff. I, I do feel like you just said that they're quite self-interested, but rightly so. If, if, I, if I was in their camp, then I would likely um, be quite opportunistic in, in the same way that they've been. Yeah, so. that's their raison d'être, and, you know, yeah. you can't argue against that, really. That's what that's what they, they, they exist to do. But but yeah. those, those the decisions taken by those three parties were, you know, instrumental in killing off um, uh, the, the, the reasonable chance we had of stopping Brexit. Could um, could Labour have joined the Progressive Alliance and and gone for a tactical vote situation? I, I understand. Yeah, I mean the problem is you 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 have to have a majority government. Um, you know you, you have to have a an agreement to basically back the Labour Party in order to to um, to, to, to enact electoral reform. There's no other way of getting electoral reform other than to get rid of the Tory government, and there's no other way under our system to get rid of the Tory government other than to elect a Labour government. Um, and of course, the, the issue was that that nobody, you know, trusted Corbyn really um, to be able to deliver that. I think there was some, you know, hope maybe the, back in the in the nineties that uh, that that the Labour Party might back electoral reform, but it was so big that there was no incentive to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, there's a lesson maybe for some of us, but um, including me, by the way, who. You used to be very much against PR, but uh, since becoming a member of the European Parliament, I've, I've swung very much the other way. Um, but yes, I think I think you know we have a long way to go. I mean, one thing that's very clear from these local elections we've just had, and indeed the general election of 2019, is that the Tories' coalition is really secure. You know, they have managed to get um, not only their traditional right-wing vote, but they've also got the socially conservative vote that used to vote Labour. Yeah. And they've kept on, this is the crucial thing, they've kept hold of their liberal centrist vote, um, which is something that we all assumed would either 
be lost um, to you know, a party like the Lib Dems, um, or indeed that a Labour party under a new leadership might actually be able to, to get. Um, and the fact that they've got those three things is, is you know, really interesting um, and, and you know, concerning in, in terms of challenging it. But what we need to do on the other side is we have to build an alliance that can not only shore up you know, the left and the centre-left, but to also get that um, centrist, um, you know, socially liberal vote off Johnson, because we have to, we have to chip apart his coalition. That's the yeah. only way we can do it. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Um, I wanted to ask you about Europe. Um, mm. So, sorry, so I just, I've got one more question on Labour. So um, mm. Europe was an issue which threatened to destroy the Conservative Party now, uh, in a weird twist of uh, a weird sort of evil twist, it now threatens to completely destroy the Labour Party because, um, like literally, like we've just said, the coalition on the right is secure, and the co and, and Labour yeah. not, not only is the coalition on the left totally um, inadequate, but Labour itself now seems to be falling apart under the weight of of Brexit because Remainers are putting pressure on Starmer to, to be more pro EU and. Other people in Labour are saying, well, no, Brexit's done. We just need to pretend that it doesn't exist and blah, blah, blah. So how, yeah. how can you reconcile the Remain Leave divide in the Labour Party, do you think? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a really tricky one. And it, it falls back to this question of competing coalitions. And how do you unify you know, a vote in traditional Labour constituencies that is very, you know, very not only comfortable with Brexit, but actually sees its delivery as a huge plus, irrespective yeah. of what they actually feel about the issue. The fact that it's been delivered, you know, yeah. that, that conviction. From, yeah, exactly. They, yeah, they, somehow, you know, yeah. It's a very popular view. With this, um, with this view, you know, from from our cities and 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 core you know, other parts of the core Labour vote, which is very anti-Brexit and you know, extremely concerned about its its long-term impacts on on our on our economy but also you know the cohesiveness of our society and the opportunities particularly for young people um yeah how do you reconcile that i mean the thing i'd say is look the labor leader's instincts are correct you know he is an internationalist um he believes in the strength of institutions like the eu he'd rather the brexit hadn't happened um but you know we are not going to get a position from anyone at the moment that says let's rejoin the eu now, what you can have is a position where we pick apart what is wrong with what the government has done, that we pick apart the flaws in the deal that they have made, and that we gradually move to a position where it becomes unarguable that we have to, in some way, move back into the European sphere. Mm. Now, I'm very clear that the logical extension of that in however many years' time is rejoining, but there are several steps that we have to go through before we get to that point. So we, as people who want to rejoin the European Union, have to get our head around the fact that, you know, that that is going to be a staged process yeah um, but the key thing here now is to is to win that fight amongst progressives um and uh, and the labor party in particular which is you know it, it, it's unsustainable to have a situation where our exporters um, are unable to compete where britain is put at a constant competitive disadvantage putting aside the constitutional questions about the future of the union what possible sustainable route is there for a country where it costs more to do business, um, where people who have a choice over where they invest will look at Britain and think, well, hang on a minute, you know, I need to do X, Y, Z that I don't need to do in, in any other European country. I can't get the people I want there, et cetera, et cetera. That I think is a way of chipping away at the, the Tories supposed bastion of strength, which is right. business right. and the economy and, you know, putting, putting the country on the best competitive footing. That used to be a core Tory strength. Why aren't we attacking them for that? 
that's what where we should be undermining them in my view and, and i think you know people will sort of be frustrated um, that no one is saying rejoin and there may well be elements of other parties that kind of hint at it a bit more strongly but ultimately you have to have the labor a labor government to unseat the tories under our system there's no other way uh, so you know the only way through this is is is, is to invest heavily in the labor party mm. there's no there's no other routes back to rejoining mm. i mean I, I i've come around to that opinion myself actually as, as someone that, that was a you know a lib, a lib dem still technically in the lib dem party but um i spend far more of my time these days urging people to um to go the way of labor which would probably get me thrown out if anyone in the lib dems heard or cared um just as well but, this isn't being broadcast <laughs> yeah exactly yeah um but anyway no i mean you're right it, in you know the lib dems are nowhere the greens are nowhere um the only way the only way to get anything that anybody wants in the progressive sphere right now is to get a labor government into power either in yeah. a, a majority or minority doesn't really bother me too much but um we just got to get you guys in there as quickly yeah, as possible I'm, I'm, and I, and I know there'll be people hearing this going, oh, I'm sick of this, you know, why should I have to you know, compromise on this? And I get that, and, and it sucks. And, 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 you know, there's no reason why supporting the Greens is any less valid than, than, than or, or Lib Dems or anyone else is any less valid than anything. Of course it's not, and that's not what I'm trying to say. What I am saying is that under our system, under our majoritarian system, first exactly. past the post, yeah. you, have, you have to accept that the only way to get rid of the Tories is to elect a Labour government. And... You know everything else will follow from there really um and and i i honestly feel that you know it there obviously there are different circumstances locally about kind of what's going on in councils and so on that might differ but when it comes to, to westminster parliament you know mps electing members of parliament under a first past the post system i'm afraid you know if you're not a labor supporter but you want a route out of this mess you know and you have you have to you have to vote with a, a nose peg on you <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, so long as you're in a constituency where Labour have a chance of actually winning. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, so I just want to move on to say vote Labour, whatever. But yes, you're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you have to say vote for Labour. <laughs> I'm I'm allowed that. to say vote tactically because I'm not technically standing for anything or anything. So, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, but we need we need a Labour government, and, and the way to get a Labour government is to make sure that we're unseating as many Tories as possible. Um, and winning as many seats for Labour in the places where Labour can win. Um, mm. But so moving on to Europe, what said? Mm. What's so good about Europe? Why did you become a member of European Parliament? Obviously, you said you've got family from across Europe and stuff. So I guess you've got mm. a, a personal connection to the continent and, and, and arguably the institution as well. But mm. what's so good about the European Union? Why should anyone care about it? I mean, the European Union is, is unique, right? So we've got countries and we've got intergovernmental institutions like the UN and you know all sorts of different models of how we solve international problems and that's great but the EU is is unique in that it occupies this space that's you know, in between being a country and in between being an intergovernmental set of institutions and a talking shop right so it, it kind of has this this different vision really of what a what a, what a political entity can do and, and feel and sound like and what I love about it is the fact that you have people from different traditions and uh, political experiences coming together and effectively you know deciding collectively on 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 common problems to common solutions i mean there are people like you know former colleagues there's a friend of mine now who's now the prime minister of estonia i mean she grew up in the soviet union you know i mean there are the, the, the political circumstances that people come from and, and 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 the histories that they bring 
it's just so illuminating. And I think when you talk to people from different cultures and traditions, you, you come to understand just a little bit more about the world. And I don't think it should stop at Europe, by the way. I think this is a model that, that many other parts of the world could and should be following. I think you, you, you look at other um, trade organizations like ASEAN, for example, that are, you know, this kind of getting there, but, you know, look at the EU and, and the, the, the level of democratic oversight that exists through the parliament, through the um, uh, supervision of national parliaments of, of, of legislation that goes through and so on. The fact that, you know, treaty change is not something dull and boring, but, but something that, that, that people are being invited to contribute to, that citizens are actively encouraged to take part in. Um, and I think it's very exciting and, it, and it's devoid of this, you know, it, it's not embarrassing, you know, to, to sort of, it's not an adversarial kind of pride is what, you know, you, you, you can feel pride in, 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 in being European uh, and having a sense of collective identity without this sort of, you know, a, a kind of rather difficult side of nationalism, which sometimes crosses over from pride into bravado into outright hostility and and uh, you know i think this this provides a, an alternative model that that works quite frankly yeah by and large. yeah well i mean my, my next question was what 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 are the what are the major flaws of the EU that you saw as a member of the european parliament because obviously there are very few people on our side of the argument that that argue that it's perfect um and there are lots of people that say it's yeah. reform but what what did you discover when you got there um, in terms of where those reforms might be best placed. Yeah, I mean, so one of its strengths is, as I say, the fact that, you know, it can be slightly, that the passions that drive it can be slightly less hostile. Um, but that's also a weakness in the sense that it can, it can sometimes be a little bit dry and mm. a little bit impersonal mm. um, and behave much more as if it's a sort of managerial process rather than something that, that engenders passion and, and, and you know, that's really the nature of how it developed. I mean, it was the coal and steel community. I mean, you don't get out of bed for that, do you? No. <laughs> yeah, coal <laughs> coal yeah. and steel collectivization, that's what it's all about. But of course, that was a huge, crucial part of, of limiting countries' ability to, to declare war on each yeah. other. Yeah. Um, and it's obviously just been extended and built on over time. And, and I think, you know, building that um, passionate relationship with, with, the idea of Europe is something that it needs to get much better at. And I have to say, I'm in danger of sounding a bit like a, an old fashioned federalist here, but the member states do do get in the way quite a bit. <laughs> I'm thinking in particular about the, the areas and files that I used to work on uh, environment and climate change and air quality. And often you would find national capitals, the mayors, the city regions, um, pushing for change and, and really ambitious targets, particularly on emissions, and the member states would be pushing back, saying, "Oh, it's far too, you know, far too costly. We can't possibly do this." Um, and I would find this time and time again that if the cities could get together, if Berlin and Bratislava and, and Bill Bowell could get together and, and determine what is in their common interests and look at best practice and, and decide to implement it, you know, the EU would be so much better. Because in my mind, there is no disconnect between multilateralism and internationalism and localism. I think the two can coexist perfectly well, where you have a pride and a sense of identity with your locality, but at the same time you recognize how working with other localities, you can create common solutions that work for everyone. And I, I honestly think that mix is, is where the EU should head. Um, and I think the, the intergovernmental uh, aspects uh, are its biggest kind of stumbling block and and uh, you know, barrier to change. Okay, interesting. 
Um, I won't go too much more into that because I think there's there's just so much that I would that I would ordinarily want to talk <laughs> to you about. But we'd, we'd run out of time <laughs> otherwise. Um, I just wanted to quickly ask you about your colleagues in the European Parliament whilst you were there. Um, mm. I, I've, I've interviewed other members of the European Parliament from the UK in the past, and they, they've all more or less said that the um, their European colleagues were very supportive, gutted um, that we were leaving. Was this your experience? Was did you get a lot of support? Was there was there a lot of emphasis on you on trying to keep keep us in the European Parliament? And also, what was the sentiment by the time you'd left? Had it shifted at mm. all? No, I think by the time it, we left, it, it got even stronger and, and there was a lot more emotion um, at the time that we left than, than I think in the immediate aftermath of the vote. Okay. I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the vote was a bit awkward, actually, because um, we felt almost as if we'd let our colleagues down a little bit by not winning the referendum. Mm. I mean, silly emotion, but I think a lot of us yeah. felt that. And, and, you know, we almost... We were worried that I think people thought that we didn't get the European Union, what it's about, and, and that we you know, somehow deserved to, 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 to leave. Um, and certainly in one or two meetings, I had a few people say, well, why would we listen to your opinion because you're leaving? And that was an extremely difficult period because, of course, you had to say, well, not only did I fight tooth and nail not to leave, but, you know, I consider myself intrinsically a part of this family uh, and of course you know added to that i represent an area that didn't vote to leave either so you know you can't kind of exclude us from the conversation and i think over time it became far more apparent that this was a battle that was not settled so when i first spoke to members of um the commission and their cabinet about you know the possibility of the brexit not happening they sort of thought i was a little bit you know, fantastical, <laughs> and like, oh look, Seb, you know, you haven't quite come to terms with it. And then, as as obviously we got on uh, through the process and the nonsense of it, you know, it's easy to forget everything that happened now. But you know, that it was really touched and go, and people started to realise, hang on a minute, there's a chance the Brits could actually stay. And it was really right up until December the twelfth, you know, the, the general election of 2019. It was really right up until then that I think there was there was you know still a sense of, of possibility. Um, and then when it finally happened, it wasn't it wasn't relief, I don't think, that, you know, um, which you might expect, but actually a lot of sadness, a lot mm. of genuine sadness mm. um, that really this was something that was unnecessary and isn't going to help anyone. Mm. Um, and, you know, really could have been avoided, but ultimately we are where we are. So, yeah, a lot of regrets, a lot of a lot of tears. Despite, you know, us having a reputation for being a bit tricky, we were kind of the awkward partner at times. Yeah. Yeah, we were, but I mean, and, and I say this, you know, are we any worse than than Orban uh, or you know the, the PIS in Poland? No, I mean, no, I don't think so. You know, yeah, we were an awkward partner sometimes, but I think also what happened in the aftermath of the referendum was a huge display of remain and uh, and you know disaffection with Brexit. I mean, up to you know a million people on the streets. Yeah. Um, you know, it made a massive difference. Don't ever underestimate the impact that had on on my former colleagues because. They, yeah. They've never seen that in, in no. their own member states. They've never seen millions of people marching down the street waving EU flags. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and here it was in this country that had just voted to leave. So it, yeah. it made a, a profound impact on a lot of people and, and actually could be quite instrumental, by the way, um, if Scotland were ever to vote you know, to, to, to leave the UK. I, I, th I think that display of emotion is something that people won't forget um, very easily.
So Scotland would be able to find it very easy to get into the EU if they apply. I think politically, yes. Economically, yeah. much harder running a structural deficit. And I'm not going to have an argument about um, uh, whether or not Scotland should leave the UK. But um, <laughs> but clearly the, uh, the the political will would be there to yeah. have uh, to have any part of the UK, frankly, back in, mm. um, if not the whole UK, preferably. But yeah. um, but yes, that 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 political will is most definitely there. Everywhere, good. by the way, that's the commission, the parliament. That that sentiment is near universal. Good, good, uh, good. Um, so, where are we now, Seb, as a as a community? Um, <laughs> I know, I know, we sort of touched on it a minute ago. You know, we said about Labour and how they might reconcile the vote. But as as a as a broader Remain community, cross party, where mm. where are we now? Because I know, I know you've also said that it, you know it's going to take incremental steps. It's going to be a sort of you know maybe j- join the odd thing, get a bit closer yeah. over time. Are we are we looking at a decade? Are we looking at a couple of decades? What what well, time frame? Well, hang on. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Hang on. Let, can I just? Yeah. I'll rephrase that. Firstly, presumably, because you said at the beginning of this, you think we should rejoin. Yes. Okay. Yes. Here's my face mask. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, good man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do think so, but, but um, for two reasons. Firstly, it's the right thing to do um, for the country, for young people, for our economy, for our exporters, for our tourism, for our place in the world, um, so on and so forth. The second reason, I think, is I think it's unsustainable where we are at the moment. I, you cannot have a situation where you know you um, leave your biggest market, um, you you slap you know extra costs on businesses. Um, and kind of expect everyone to just sort of be okay with it. Now, of course, the rebound from COVID, there's going to be a huge economic boom because when you stretch a piece of elastic so far, it will snap back. You know, we've had a huge retraction in our economy. Of course, it's going to snap back. Um, But over time, you know, those additional costs from Brexit will become unignorable. And you can ignore them now because they're sort of covered by the pandemic and, and, you know, people aren't traveling. So you're not really seeing the effects uh, really at an aggregate level. You are at an individual level. And for some companies, it's, it's existential. But, you know, at an aggregate level, people don't sense it yet. But over time, that divergence will have an impact. So you ask me on timeframes. So the honest answer is I have no idea. But I will say this to everyone in our community is try and try and breathe a little. So take a step back and recognize that we are in the nadir at the moment. So, um, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, maintain your anger. Absolutely, that's that's the right emotion to, to have and, and store as a source of energy. Good. Don't ever let go of your <laughs> anger. Um, but, but don't despair either. Mm. Um, recognize that, yes, this is a nadir, but, you know, the thing about being at the bottom is, you're at the bottom, right? The the only way is up, to quote Yaz. Um, so you know there is there is there is literally only one direction that we can go now, um, and that is back towards the European sphere. Um, it's not possible uh, for an unsustainable situation to to last very long at all. So have faith, bit by bit, um, we will chip away at this. It, but it will take time. It absolutely will take time. And you know. If, if people are thinking in timeframes of the next general election, I think probably need to adjust their horizons. Yeah. This is something that will, you know, almost certainly not be a feature in the next general election. Right. But the one after, I reckon it could. I reckon it could. So, yeah. you know, let's let's resolve to to not despair and and, and keep chipping away at this. Right. Right. Well said. I mean, I wonder if if you had any sort of. Um 
practical um, steps for people in, in terms of their campaigning energy? Because obviously mm. there are other things that people in our in our community care about. For instance, for me, mm. climate change, electoral reform mm. are the two big ones. Um, mm. And I do tend to put time and thought into, into those areas as well. Mm. Um, so what should our community be doing in terms of practical campaigning steps? Where ought they to be putting their, their energy? Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Don't ever uh, stop campaigning on the issues that drive you, most definitely, even when they seem like lost causes. I mean, um, yeah, let's, I mean, you mentioned climate change. That's, 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 uh, that's the single most important issue facing us as a species and us as a planet, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the reason Brexit, of course, comes into this is because, you know, you have to ask, well, where will the decisions that, that matter on climate change take place? Will they take place in Westminster or will they take place in Brussels? And the answer, of course, is Brussels is going to be much more influential in the future. So look for ways in which, you know, the, the, your community can feed into the discussion that's happening um, uh, elsewhere uh, and, and put pressure on um, uh, on the opposition, for example, to make sure that you know we have some kind of voice when it comes to the decisions that are made in Brussels. Like what is happening at a local level? Um, you know what are um, what what is your city doing? What is your region doing to to combat climate change? And how can they work collaboratively with with partners in in Europe to to try and you know get those issues better known and, and, and more discussed? It's almost as if we have sort of have to circumvent the government, really, and pretend they don't exist and, and do it ourselves. And, and quite yeah. frankly, I think there'll be a lot of my former colleagues who, who would love to hear um, from, from people in the UK about you know, what's happening and, and you know, take part in forums and, and join groups that share information and networks. And, and let's just try and recreate the EU without being in it. Right? Yeah, OK. <laughs> forget okay. the government, forget Brexit and just get on and talk to our... Uh, our friends and neighbours about how we solve the problems we face. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I think I know you have to leave, so perhaps we'll perhaps we'll leave it there. Seb Dance, thank you very yeah. much. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Next week on the show we have Professor Michael Duggan, a well-known figure in our community, a powerful, forceful, intelligent voice on Brexit over the course of the last few years. In this episode, we discuss the challenges um, that faced the People's Vote campaign early on uh, and what we can learn from that. We discussed the situation for Northern Ireland now um, and the impact that Brexit has had, especially down the, the Irish Sea. And we discussed more broadly whether or not we've seen any benefits at all to Brexit um, since it's happened. Spoiler, we haven't. Hope to see you then. Thanks so much. <laughs>